Welcome back to the Tough Stuff series. This is volume seven, and it's game day minus 13 right now with the Tough Stuff book launching on February 1st. On this episode, my guest is German women's rowing team head coach, Tom Morris. A psychology major, Tom has coached national rowing squads for Australia, Canada, and now Germany, as well as spending a stint as coaching high performance manager for the Fremantle Dockers in the AFL. What I appreciate about Tom is he's an integrative thinker and understands that there's more to performance coaching than just treating symptoms. He's someone that I turn to for advice regularly, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy our conversation. The Tough Stuff series, volume seven, is with Tom Morris. Tom Morris, how are you, mate? I'm very well, thank you, Cody. And how are you? I'm doing fantastic. It's been a long time coming. We've had a lot of these conversations. We've never recorded one before, but uh, absolutely delighted to have you on, mate. And so much to talk about, and and you know the direction that I've been taking the show. I'm uh, really curious to see where we can go and the type of conversation we can have. I don't usually do this. I, I usually kind of uh, let people understand who you are in the midst of the show. But why don't you just give us the two-second history of Tom Morris because you're a fascinating character on your own, your background and, and where you've been all around the world to coach. So just give us the, the high level, who's Tom Morris? Okay, Tom Morris is a learner, I would call myself. <laughs> uh, I am... I've uh, been fortunate enough to be involved in sport from a young age, which gave me um, real direction in terms of how can you learn through a medium. Um, went into coaching or participating in, but then coaching rowing for a number of years, uh, moving up to sort of coaching internationally for Australia, then through circumstances over to Canada, uh, at the Olympic level, and then um, now here in Germany. But in between all that, doing a sidestep um, into Australian rules football um, in coaching coaches, um, really working off that uh, experience within the high-performance sporting landscape and combining that with my background in educational psychology. So wrapping those all up, who am I? I'm someone that's very, very um, interested in people, behaviour, and what that can do and what that can lead to. Yeah, we met at the Canadian Coaching Conference and, and you did a presentation which was kind of psychology-based there and, and that's what I found really fascinating as well is because it's one thing to be a head coach and go and explore psychology. It's another to kind of have that psychological base at the, you know, at the fore of everything that you, you've done. Um, and so we, we started kind of talking about that over coffee and, um, yeah, it always ends up in really interesting places. So uh, let's go down there again. But uh, I want to ask you this. This is the kind of kickoff question for this whole series. When I say the tough stuff to you as a head coach, 
with no other prompting, where does your mind go? The first word that comes to mind when you say the tough stuff for me is honesty at all times. And I think that's the hardest thing for any of us to do, especially in positions of leadership. Uh, it's incredibly difficult to be honest with people when the news is not always good. And in sport, rarely is the news always good. Um, and so everything that surrounds being able to be honest is what challenges you for the tough stuff. So that's philosophically in terms of your communication, uh, behaviours and everything that goes. And I think part of coaching is the nuances of how do you convey honesty in an empathetic, compassionate, performance-oriented way um, at all times with athletes, staff, whoever it might be. Yeah. I'm curious about how you think about finding that line. And when you said that, my mind went to there's a clip of Gary Lineker interviewing Jurgen Klopp. I don't know if you've seen it, but they uh, they talk about or Lineker asks him, how do you communicate with the team throughout the week to the guys that aren't playing? And and he kind of goes through this explanation. He's like, well, I don't really. Um, we talk about it afterwards and it's more so geared about, you know, how you can improve. But he, he, there's this probably 20 seconds where he says, the honest answer is you're not in the team because you're not good enough. And, and again, I don't think many people would have picked up on it, but it, it's, it, it is the crux of the whole thing, right? Is there, you're always treading this line of, yeah, honesty, like you said, is uh, most of the time you kind of being dishonest to a certain extent to either protect um, someone's ego or, or have them focus on something else. Like let's get next week. Um, you know, we need an extra week of training or whatever it may be. Yeah, how do you think about finding that line and then how do you identify the people that you can be really honest with versus ones that maybe need a little bit more, not coddling, but, you know, it's just a different way of, uh, of communicating that honesty? Well, I think that that um, it's interesting, that, that clip, because I have seen that one, and it's... Uh, the key thing there is that, um, to me anyway, that that honesty comes through uh, your behaviours over time. I, I think if you were to, in isolation, be honest to someone, it will come across as either rude, crass, because someone has to interpret the context of what you've just said to them. And taken out of context or in isolation, it in most cases, especially in the roles that we're talking about in being a senior head coach or anything like that, that honesty is can be misconveyed because of the fact that it's contextual. But over time, the more and more you have that honesty, the less and less of an emotional response it elicits from the person. And it comes from a good, like it comes from a place where it is actually correct. And so I've, I've often said this with staff and, and players is that, you can dispute um, the delivery of the information, but the actual information is irrefutable. Though that's the that's the fact. And this is the thing with when people say it's always easier to work with computers than people because a computer doesn't read into the context of what it's being told. 
Whereas a person illustrates that information with everything else that may go around it. And so I think when we're talking about tough stuff, the hard thing is always making the assessments of what environmental context is there? What's the background? What's this individual's um, upbringing and current state and how is their on off field? How's their psychology, all the rest of it. Um, and so to really be able to convey honesty in a compassionate or empathetic way, you have to have a really deep understanding of, of your players and staff and which leads on to a, like a bigger concept or topic that I'm really spending a lot of time on, which is that authentic leadership and, um, mm. you know, developing genuine behaviours rather than these forced or trained behaviours. Where my mind went there as you were talking was, yeah, around that individualization of, uh, you know, delivery of message. You've worked with athletes in Canada, You've worked with rowers in Australia, Canada, and Germany, and you've worked with coaches in Australia and, and ultimately players in Australia. How have you found potentially even those conversations to be different or those nuances to be different based on cultural dynamics? And what I mean by that is just to kind of double click on that idea. It's not just these, you know, broad strokes, Germans are all like this, Australians are all like this, you know, but, there is ultimately uh, power dynamics at play and how those power dynamics between a coach and an athlete are interpreted. Um, they do have a cultural element to them. How have you found that? Because yeah, the last, your last, what, five years you've, you've worked in three different countries with kind of three different, very different mindsets uh, and very different power dynamics. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's a really interesting one. And it's one that I often reflect on. But the thing that I've really learned across all of it is there's an, there's an element in the behaviours that we see that are generalisable or through that cultural norm that the sport brings, cultural norm that the, like, the region or, or country that you're in. Um, and then there's those and the historical context around those things. What is both the same and unique is that if you look at each individual person as an individual person, irrespective of sport, location, or history, and you take the time to understand that person, then there is no real cultural difference because it's individualized. It's, it's their own life. And that life can be, you might find similarities between someone here in Germany, someone in Australian football, uh, or someone in Canada in a completely different sport. Um, their environments are all different, but those people have similar stories and therefore require similar communication. Where I think the biggest difference is, is it's the role modelling that is present in both leadership, coaching, and as an athlete themselves. And that's where that um, socio-cultural uh, impact is really high. So what what, what is role modelled in Australian football? What is role modelled in Canadian sport? What is role modelled here in Germany is at times very different, but still travelling along the same spectrum of progress um, in terms of uh, aspirational leadership and uh, an athlete development. I forget where I read it, but there was a quote that I read recently about, yeah, fundamentally underneath all of it, 
you know, people want to do well and they want to provide for their families if you wanted to boil it down really at, at kind of a at a human level is it doesn't matter where you're from it doesn't matter your history it doesn't matter whether people agree with your politics or your socioeconomic status or your whatever is ultimately everyone's trying to achieve those things um and uh, yeah they, they don't differ too much um i, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head there and basically and, and what has made working in you know, significantly different cultural countries so like culturally while we're all western there's very different um Mm. Uh, big differences between Germany, Australia, Canada, and even to move from an Olympic sport to a um, more professional sport within the AFL. Um, the key thing that really strings everyone together is that objective, which is that either whether it's to provide for your family, to achieve a result, ultimately it's to get the most out of what you're trying to do and be the best that you can be at it. And that's not sport specific, but sports certainly more obvious about it as an objective. Um, and that's the thing is when you tap into that with an individual, it takes a lot of the, um, the personal criticism out of it because there's a common understanding that that objective is there. Um, if we're all trying to be that, then we're all actually trying to achieve it and we might make mistakes along the way, but that's where there is that um, commonality across all of these landscapes is through that objective to try and be the best that they can be as an individual. Let's go into the role modeling and then I want to get into your role in the AFL and, and coaching coaches because it's fascinating. and I'm really curious to hear your experience there. When did it, hit home for you that role modeling as a coach was so important because it's not really in the the knowledge bank it's it's kind of this idea of or, or the way we've been taught to coach historically has kind of been i say this one thing and the athlete goes and does it and i don't necessarily need to model that behavior or i don't need to subscribe to the set of behaviors you know it was always this do as I say, not as I do kind of ethos. And the yeah. coaches were treated separately and, you know, they could go down to the hotel bar and drink until 1am while the players had curfew, that kind of idea. But when did it really hit home for you that, that what you do, every behaviour that you portray has a knock-on effect to the performance of your athletes? For me, it wasn't. Uh, one specific moment, but it was a string of experiences while in the role of an assistant coach. Um, and being an assistant coach is a very delicate position because you generally end up being the tube between the voice of the athlete and the voice of the coach. So you sort of, the head coach has their opinion, the athlete has theirs, and both tell it to you. Now, it's always a delicate position because you've got to be loyal to the cause, which is the head coach. Cause if they have no confidence or trust in you, then you're not doing your job. But then the players, you also have to be loyal to them in that you're basically a translator for what may or may not be understood. Um, 
and at times you're a tutor rather than a teacher and trying to supplement some of that. And in that experience, I remember sitting there with a coach who he'd just come to visit and he was looking and he said, oh, it's an interesting scenario, isn't it? And I asked him, why is that? And the coach was having a meeting with the players. And for a 20-minute meeting, the coach is sitting there looking at 30 athletes. And so if you scan the room, at most you'll give 30 seconds to each athlete's facial expression, to their body language, to what they're doing. But for that 20 minutes, those 30 people are looking directly at you and they're observing everything you do. They're observing all of your anecdotes, behaviours, your body language, how you carry yourself, how you deliver that message. And when this coach sort of explained that to me, it really made me start to observe that relationship more. Um, and working it was really when i was working with athletes in canada in a big group and understanding that these are adults and i'm an adult so why is there a difference in communication here that would exist that wouldn't exist in any other context and the only reason is is because there's this authority based like model that doesn't really need to exist and so it was kind of motivating to me to say like, okay, well, we don't need to um, face each other here and um, be oppositional at all. Um, we actually have to stand side by side, look at the same whiteboard, except that we both work for the same company, but we have different jobs within that company. Um, the importance of... Uh, that behavioural, I, I think in terms of role modelling, behaviour is the most interesting thing. And, and I mean, that's a broader discussion to go into. But for me, there's so much literature now on leadership that the danger at the moment is people know what they should be doing, but then they don't actually do it. And it's as simple as everyone thinks they're sitting up straight in their chair, but everyone's slouching. And so our own judgment of our behaviours is generally pretty off. Um, unless we're a critical self-reflector and unless we actually ask for others' opinions of us. So I think in, in a lot of cases, the role modelling and coaching is often a few generations behind where the athletes are at the time. Yeah, and it seems to be in a really transitional phase right now where, again, there's, there's this kind of a select group that adhere to that way of thinking and, and kind of that line of research. And yeah, I, I mean, at a, at a deep behavioral level, I think it's just so crucial though, that we start to understand that, that every word, every, you know, <laughs> roll of your eyes, every time you cross your, cross your arms, um, it, it communicates something. And, and this is part of the conversation that I, I have in the tough stuff is, around even how we think about communication and what's being communicated is off. Right? Like the fact that behaviour isn't even seen as part of communication, they're treated separately, makes sense from an academic perspective, that's great. But in terms of application, which is our world, we are professional communicators, uh, it, it doesn't make much sense. And then, yeah, that reflection and self-talk is another. Ha, ha, that communicates something. 
and it creates behavior uh, again treated separately and and not kind of bundled into how we think about communication we think about it like um you know, any given Sunday, Al Pacino standing up there and giving the rousing speech and then the, you know, the Miami Sharks go out and, and win the game. Uh, you know, they come together as a, as a team. That's communication as far as, you know, what, what we've been reared on. But that, that's an interesting concept because you, you're right. I think a lot of the time communication mm. is misconstrued as public speaking. And public speaking has elements of communication in it, but the definition of communication is um, the transmission of a message and the like the actual receipt of that message. Um, and I think that you, you've touched on a really good point there is that so much of our, I mean, I, I, often, I often say like our team culture is basically just observable behaviors because no one, ever sort of reads a manifesto and says, wow, that team's got a really good culture. They've seen it in action and then they've tried to define it. And so what they're really defining are the observable behaviours. And there's a, there's a saying that like a, a, a team is always a reflection of their coach because it's what the coach allows, what they model, what they do. Um, and the team will emulate that because that's where the leadership is. Um, and I think though that that um, that concept that we are all actually trying to achieve or work towards that common goal is why the, those big flaws in communication prevent peak performance so often in sport. Um, and that's where I, I personally uh, not a lot of uh, emphasis is given to. Not was the message good, but did the message hit? Um, and I think that's it. That, that's that's the real missing link in a lot of what's happening, especially in like coach communication, yeah. athletes and each other. Yeah, we're going to go into that now. Uh, but you're right in that one of the things that's been, been really transformational for me is this idea of if you've ever wanted to know what it is you or how you view the world, look at your team as a head coach. Like that is a simple reality. Obviously it takes a lot of self-awareness to kind of interpret what they're doing. But if you create yourself in your team, that is, it is just, I, I don't know. I, I believe that to be true um, because again, to kind of put a bow on this conversation, all of your behavior, your beliefs, your uh yeah, what it is you view that's important in the world, not just the sport, but in the world and, and how you interact within the world becomes represented by a team. Because again, to your point is there are so many times where all 30 sets of eyes are staring at you. And then, you know, it becomes that kind of, um, you know, law of contagion in that, who you observe the most, you start to become and you start to take on their behavior. And who's observed the most in sporting organizations? The head coach. Exactly. Uh, I mean, that's, that's it. The crux of it is that. And I think it's often um, underappreciated how 
visible a role a head coach is. Um, it's often seen that the head coach is the head coach as a role is what you get after you've just done enough time as an assistant coach or had some results. But the shift from that, it's it's like moving from management to CEO. It's actually a completely different role altogether. And the amount of times I've spoken with coaches who have held head coaching roles and said, this isn't what I thought it would be. Um, because it's so many other roles than just coaching your athletes, um, that often that it, it's misunderstood. And the amount of times coaches, well, they'll be dealing with the media department, they'll be dealing with the finance department, they'll be dealing with their staff, they'll have a staff meeting, they might have some sort of board review that they have to do. And then they walk into a meeting with athletes and they're tired and they're frazzled and they've had enough. The athlete doesn't know that. And so that's that hard part of managing all the hats of being a head coach. Um, and I think many don't do that very well. But at the same time, uh, that's the role. And it just hasn't really been trained for correctly. So nor is it understood by organisations themselves um, as to what this role entails. And so, yeah, it's, it's, an inter it's for sure it's an interesting one. I, I'm fascinated by it. I'm always, always fascinated by it. Tommy, are you saying that there needs to be a book explaining what head coaching is? Because there's, there's one coming out. <laughs> oh, of course. Of course I am. Of course I am. That's exactly what I'm, I'm getting at here. No, but I think, I think it, it, it definitely raises a, a conversation, which is what I know you've tried to do, but it raises a conversation to say that, you know, arguably which head coach has been trained in that specific role um, from a, from a uh, academic or, you know, um, a perspective any, in any other way than experiential. Um, and I think that's where you're getting this interesting uh, shift in the personnel that are becoming head coaches now as opposed to 10 years ago, as opposed to 20 years ago. It's, it's not the person with the runs on the board. It's not the person that just did their time. It's uh, people who are having qualities identified um, and then being given a clean slate, basically, to try and, or not even qualities, but um, exhibited, exhibited or observable values that align with organisations, teams, players, uh, and lead to that performance. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It, it, this is what I spend all my time looking into is, is that pairing and that alignment and the shift in that. And, that, yeah, the move away from the, I mean, it was just so easy in the old days. It was the club legend, right? I played play 300 games and I know a bit about footy and or, you know, a bit about cricket or, you know, a bit about soccer and, yeah, you're looking for a job. Uh, I just slot you in there and to your point, like, gosh, the the if the public only knew <laughs> is what I always come back to. If the public only knew what what head coaches had to deal with how much how many things there are in a day that need to be taken care of to your point is like the media and you know the 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 new york yankees head coach for instance basically has to meet with the media twice a day every day 
just that on its own, just that one thing. It's incredible. Yeah, it's it's an it's it really is a um, it's a job that you don't prepare for in um, a career yeah. trajectory of coaching. Um, and generally, the problem is once you're there, once you're in that seat, it's really not easy to learn on the job because the critics are at the door as you drive into the car park. And so it's a really, it's a really challenging job. And so it requires um, really sort of solid sense of self, um, really strong and, and deliberate mentors um, and a strong network around you and foundation to fall back on. But I think coming back to that original point is that's where that authentic um, or genuine behaviour that you have to exhibit is so important because it's impossible to put on the one hat that's behaving here and then switch it to the one hat that's there, switch it to the one hat that's there. So gone are the days where we sit around the bar until 1am because that's not what the job is anymore. Um, just like, you know, 150 years ago, the doctors used to drink half the whiskey that they gave the patients and that's not the job these days either. Um, and so all the different roles in our society are progressing differently and they're being led by what do the what does the customer want from it? Um, and I think that's the challenge in sport is that we should be being led by what the athletes and the sport requires from it. But in a lot of different sports, there's many other stakeholders than the athlete. Um, and that's why I've definitely observed that difference across both professional and Olympic sports. Yeah. Let's talk about your foray into that professional avenue because you went from coaching an Olympic sport in Canada, a summer sport at that, which doesn't register here, um, <laughs> as you well know. Uh, we're a winter sport nation. And then you go from that to the biggest sport in Australia uh, and coaching coaches and working on coaching performance and facilitating coaching cohesion and the cohesion of the coach-athlete relationship but also the coach-coach relationship. Just tell us about that that shift because that is huge into itself in terms of you know, you're now a facilitator uh, rather than you know, directly being responsible for the performance. Um, but then also just all those other environmental nuances, Olympic sport to, to professional what was that experience like for you? And and just to explain, I'll 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 do the intro. You you went and worked for Fremantle Dockers in Australia in the AFL uh, with Ross Lyon, who is one of the best coaches in in the AFL. Um, and that's a pretty big leap. It was. Um... But again, I think uh, it was certainly an eye-opening experience. Like I said at the start, like I learned a lot, and um, but I also was confident that I brought to the table experiences that hadn't been had within AFL context. Um, and I think you know, as an Australian going into Australian sport, and for me personally, coming from Western Australia and, and growing up with football as a as a important part of our cultural fabric um 
I think I was most um, intrigued by the the grandeur of, or I suppose the um, the loudness of the sport. But at its core, it's still the exact same thing of athletes trying to achieve a result collectively. The dynamic is different, obviously, to a sport like rowing, which is a team sport, but is still um, relative in relative size, small. Um, but to then see how do you manage 45 players with six coaches with say five or six sports science staff with six physiotherapy and uh, sports science support staff plus a front office a back office all these other elements plus football analytics department now the role of a head coach i think in that context is incredibly demanding um and I think the only way that you can really do it successfully is um, to kind of choose what you're going to focus on and make that what you do. And uh, and I think that's what Mike observed with Ross was his thing was that he it was about the players. Um, and that's what set up that structure and where a lot of that success lies. Where my role I saw coming in there was while that attention is there, that attention for the coaches and their own development to then help, um, you know, bring that vision to life of the head coach needs to be reinforced, re-engaged because, you know, rarely does the head coach get to sit on the chair in their office. Um, and that's not something that I was so used to. I, I saw in rowing, even at the highest levels, the head coach still had more face-to-face -face time with their staff, with their athletes, with the other elements. And so it was really interesting because you had to communicate a lot in a very small amount of time. Um, and the same amount of pausing and time for reflection in a football season is just not that long. Um, and so I think that was a really interesting thing. And yeah, it was, as I said, it was a really interesting learning opportunity for me. Um, and really interesting to see that the challenges the coaches faced in football in Australia were no different to the challenges the coaches faced in every other sport around the world. Um, and so, yeah, so that was, that was um, what that foray did. And do you think, that's a, it's still a really underutilized, I mean, even just line of thinking, I feel, in that there's still this idea. And again, it's partially organizational, partially potentially uh, just a maybe a head coaching kind of ego thing and, a, and an assembly of power thing potentially. But do you think having either a, performance coach for the coaches or a mentor or a, a, an elder figure within coaching groups is still underutilized? I think it is. I think it's, it's got so much to do with the ethos, ego and um, leadership style of the head coach themselves. Yeah. Because ultimately 
and I, I want to be really careful with how I word this, but ultimately, if the head coach is observable, like we've talked about with these behaviours, and the athletes can pick up on that, the staff can pick up on that, the um, the coaches, other coaches can pick up that, and so can the media and opposition. It becomes really visible how that person operates on all days of the week in all contexts. And I think within AFL now, you see coaches who are, are exhibiting those behaviours. And it would be shocking for us to hear a story of them doing anything to the contrary because the way they talk to the media, the way they talk to their players, the way they talk to their staff seems to be on the same level. Um, and I think that when that is happening, there's less of that leadership with a whip. Um, and it's more, for want of a better term, it's more leadership with a hug and a handshake. Um, because it's this understanding that we're all people. If I can be genuine and, and honest to you, you can be genuine and honest to me. You might not always see eye to eye, but we're always going to have a respect there. And I think that's the big um, to move forward with is that what a lot of sports don't have yet is that respect from top to bottom in their structures and from staff and from CEO through to janitor, from last on the bench to star player. Um, we're still developing that sort of overall respect of, of um, the sports team fabric, the sports team framework. I agree. And what you just described is probably what I find most interesting about this show is that for whatever reason, it's developed an audience in North America, it's developed an audience in Europe, and it's developed an audience in Australia and New Zealand. And what that does, and it's kind of equal, it's kind of like you know 33% in all those regions. But what it does is every show I get messages from people from the other kind of two continents, if you will. So if it's, you know, an Australian guest, you get you know, North American messages and, and, and European messages and, and they're always, it's quite different. And so what I'm able to capture, not by design, but it is just those traditional ethos things within those regions. Like coaching is done this way in this sport, in this area. And, and so it's interesting to watch. And to your point, I think Aussie rules and AFL is ahead in a lot of areas um, in terms of that facilitation and that respect that you talked about. Um, definitely the coaching behaviours, uh, definitely the, a lot of the vulnerability elements that we talk about, um, you know, that are kind of hypothesised. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's just really interesting to, to go through over the last couple of years. You know, it's almost, this show's almost been around for two years now and, and to see those things start to get introduced into other sports. Um, but, yeah, I, I would agree with you in that it, it, it seems that the 18 guys that are in their jobs right now, it, it is very close to that, uh, yeah, what you see is, is what you get. Um, which 
is fascinating from a case study perspective on its own, I think. Yeah. And I think gone are the days. And I think it comes to this point where there's, I mean, I was talking about this recently, that there's never been a more educated generation of athlete. Yeah. And there's never been a more educated generation of coaches. And so gone, like, I think we're almost out of this era of, well, I, you know, I have my master's in coaching. I've done my background in coaching science. I have my understanding of physiology. I think we're almost at this point where they're a given. If you don't have that, then high performance isn't the pathway for you. But what we are seeing though, that what is almost like what is brought into that, like the OSCIC or the junior coaching framework is still highly important at the highest level of the sport, which is that show compassion, you know, give messages in a supportive way. Now that's not to say that we're taking anything away from high performance, but ultimately, and this is where my real key philosophy comes from, is that if we're talking about peak performance out of people, staff, players, other coaches in our team, there is no way you can argue that the best way to have an absolute optimal peak performance is through any form of abuse or neglect. So you might be able to achieve results with the hard-nosed coaching and the hard-line coaching, but you, that's not to say that you couldn't have achieved better or more sustainable results with a more holistic approach to coaching. And I think that's where that head coach role, I honestly believe if the right people are in it, it's going to become an easier role in the next decade because it's going to become more natural for that person. You know, if you have a, a natural tendency to be yourself and be able to communicate with empathy, to show trust and understanding or develop trust and understanding within your playing group and staff group. The role is not that difficult. Where it becomes difficult is when you're philosophically at odds with any of those uh, subdivisions of your performance framework and it becomes a chore or you say, I didn't sign up for that element of it. And I think like we kind of touched on earlier that it allows people to sort of shirk responsibility of what that role is even though that role has changed. So the thing is, if you were a head coach and you've been one for 10 years, the job you signed up for 10 years ago isn't the job you have now. Um, and I think that uh, that little element um, that people have to sort of prepare for, right now we just don't have the training yet. The role is there, the people are there, but we just don't have the training. It's still, it's still, being, it's still in development. Like even the book's still being written. <laughs> right yeah i agree completely and there's another element to that i think as well in that as organizations really start to develop their value set and actually own that value set is now it becomes an exercise in matching that value set to the coach's value set so again historically it was we want you to come in and bring everything you know and all your values as the coach and that'll become the, the value set of the club. And now it's reversed in that, no, 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 this is what Manchester United stand for. This is what Southampton stand for. This is what Fremantle stand for. And so when the organisation owns that, then the job search is different in terms of who's coming in. And, and that's still developing, that there's 
there's a few that do that well. And I mentioned Southampton. I believe they are really kind of setting the standard probably globally on that. Um, but, uh, yeah, now that we've gone and developed all of those values and behaviours and, and there's, you know, this is what, you know, they, they've gone past that words on the wall and actually been implementable behaviours across the organisation, not just the, the football department or the sporting department, the business departments as well. Now it becomes there's a different leadership search, which means, again, the, the coach, the head coach has really got to know what their values are, what they stand for, what happens on the pitch and the philosophy on the pitch or, you know, at game time, that can always adapt. But those values have got to be in line. Well, and, and you're right. And that's the thing I, I have definitely observed is that those, like, your values are everything. And the values are what align people. Um, because the thing in sport is that you don't even need a mission statement. What's the, like, what's a vision? The vision is to win. Like, any AFL club wants to win. If someone provided them a pathway to winning, they'd all accept that. Like no one, none of those 18 are saying, we're not in this to win. We're actually just here to have fun. Um, because that's just not what it's about, nor is it in the Olympic sport as well. So it is winning. And I think um, we've seen that. We've seen that through history. And recently, at least in the Olympic sports, which is quite interesting, is that the concept of winning at all costs has been eroded rapidly. And there's been some really fascinating stuff come out of Great Britain following the Rio Olympics. And I know in Canada too, where that it turns out that winning at all costs doesn't really get you much. But winning the right way or even losing the right way in pursuit of winning is actually way more beneficial to everyone involved. And so I think that's what's really fascinating. And that's what's really fascinating to watch in um, sports like AFL or um, football around the world is that it's observable. Um, and that's where even within teams, like there'll be the media narratives, which can vary at times and suit certain agendas. But those teams that have those strong observable cultures, if you were to mute the TV, you could still see the culture. You could still see the behaviours. And that means that it's speaking, it's speaking loudly. And so I think as organisations become stronger in those values, like you said, yeah, there's the job search for what do we want, what fits us. And hopefully what organisations will start to have is the courage to not just basically say, yeah, but the, the results on the paper are good. Because I've never seen a resume from a coach that says I've won 10 medals um, but psychologically damaged 44 athletes. So people are always going to leave the thing on that they want to and, and take the thing off that they don't. And so I think, and that's it. And, and then second to, secondly to that, which is really important in coach searching, is just being a member of a good culture doesn't mean that you understand that culture. And I think that's often, um, at least in AFL, was observable. The players that were part of successful teams were thought to be going on to be like hot, like num like great team players, um, really understanding or pivotal pivotal to that culture. But then in big teams, there are a lot of bystanders that they're a part of it, but they're just flowing with the river. They're not directing it. 
Um, and so I think that's quite interesting when you look at that. And that's why you'll generally see certain clubs or, or things that export a lot of staff. And ultimately that's, that's good. That's a good thing. So it should be the objective of, a, of an organization to have whoever they're developing in their staff to go on to be the heads of every other organization within five to 10 years, because then it means you did a good job. Um, but if you try to hold people in their seat the whole time, you're going to lose good people anyway. So you may as well do it the right way. Yeah. You hit on a really good point there in that it doesn't mean that they understand that culture. And I think that's where so many tripped up. You know, you, you look at the, I mean, the Patriots are probably the one that have had to deal with this the most is so many organizations have tried to become them and literally in the NFL hired away offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, put them in a different environment and lo and behold, doesn't work. Um, you know, Kansas city were the one that did that. They went, they hired about five staff. And so what works in Boston didn't work in Kansas. And um, again, it's, it's that idea of just because you're in it, it doesn't mean you understand how it all fits together and the, the, the alignment that goes into that performance. Mm. Um, and, and within that, sorry, within that, like the cultures that have been the best are the ones who, rather than try to emulate someone else, they were themselves. And the, and the core of all those things, whenever you, I mean, if you look at AFL, when you look at the Bloods culture, when you look at um, the All Blacks development and culture there, you look at Man United, you look at a few teams like this that have developed over time, Sheffield's right. um, they didn't try to copy someone else. They sat there and did that hard reflection on themselves, set their values, and then worked off it. And people were in or they were out. Now, what you don't see when you, when you read the books or you, or you watch the documentaries on these teams what you don't see is all the people that actually got cut from that along the way. Because in any organization, if you're strong with your values, you're, con you're going to have to constantly trim the fat because there are going to be people who they just don't get it or they'll say they want to be in it, but then they don't. And they have these counter behaviors. And so you have to, organizations have to be strong enough to have the conviction to say, no, well, if you breach that, you breach that. And I think that's one of those interesting things in certain industries in sport where you have um, associate like coaching associations or coaching unions um, where it does make the roles difficult um, to completely follow through on a values-based culture, uh, which is a, a really difficult position to be in. But I think, I mean, that's going down another path, but that whole concept of well-being as a, as an actual key element of performance is we still got a long way to go there. Yeah. You, you hit on something there that I've been talking about a lot recently and it's not about having what they have. It's about having what we have just better. And, and that's where a lot of organizations fall down. And, and again, talking about it being observable is it's observable. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah. The best, the best way to know if you've got a team, good team culture is that someone tells you. <laughs> like, it's, I often find it funny when teams talk about how good their culture is or we have this strong culture and this is what we do and we stand for. And you see it in playing groups and things with their, 
the mantras and the, you know, the um, like you said, the words on the wall. But often just being a rote, like rote learning culture is not an easy thing to then go and do. And I've seen it in teams, like, you know, or you don't know, like, you can say to someone, someone can look you in the eye and say, yeah, no, we're really strong and we're going to do this and we're going to win. But it's what they're not saying. And you both know when you're standing there that that's not true or that it's not understood, it's not believed. And that's that dangerous position to spend too long in. And um, Yeah, often, often it's that way. Yeah. Yeah, I've said a number of times already on on <laughs> on this season and just in conversations, like the amount of people that proudly message me and tell me that their, their team sweeps the sheds um, is quite fascinating, actually. But it's it's actually not about that. That's not the interesting part about the All Blacks um, and, and legacy and, and the work that they did. It's, it's great you clean up after yourself, but you know the the Japanese have been doing that for a long time and as well and um the the interesting work is the the digging into the maori culture and the actual understanding foundationally of where they come from now service is part of that and how service is executed is by cleaning up after themselves it's not the the foundational piece uh they did the hard work they had hard conversations uh and that is just the act of service that came out of that is into clean up after themselves. And so I think that's where, again, there's, there's deeper elements that we need to get to rather than just seeing something which looks nice in a book and everyone tweets about and then going, well, we're going to go and do that and, and we'll become the All Blacks and we'll win 86% of our games. It, 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 it's not that simple. I think, well, exactly. And it's often, like, again, it's this really interestingly... Uh, interesting discussion that's often misconstrued is that in all the countries I've been in, we've read legacy, you know? So everybody has the story of sweeping the sheds, but the reality is that there is not one sports science research paper that links sweeping the sheds to Olympic medals or uh, championships or world cups. So that clearly wasn't the only element of it. And a lot of the times with those books, what they are is an interesting journal of a moment in time or a team culture or anything like that. But at their crux, that's where you have to really like dive into. And it's interesting when reflecting on the, the Bulls or the Michael Jordan documentary recently, which was a fascinating look back over uh, a decade or more of a successful franchise. When looking at legacy, what for me I found is the most interesting commentary was the coach and how they shaped the culture of that team from the start. They sat down, they talked with the athletes, they respected their athletes, they respected their staff. Now, that's not to say you didn't have the occasional blip within that thing, but they empowered the people around them to do the job. And in doing so, created trust, created respect create an environment where there didn't need to be prima donnas because they weren't accepted or rewarded. And so in doing that, all of a sudden you end up with these cultural uh, cultures that are created. And like a slight side note, and for this moment anyway, definitely don't need to put this in, but like um, 
and maybe it's even better if you don't, but like when I came to Germany here and took on a like discipline within the sport that for 20 to 30 years hasn't had success. And it's acted as almost a little bit of a black sheep within um, their system, their national system. And everyone, and the, the messaging from everyone was that, oh, you know, that's, it's just too hard. Like, it's just not good. What I found fascinating was that by really setting values and setting strong behaviours myself that speak to those values that we said, it's amazing how quickly a shift can occur. Um, we're going on two years later. They've become one of the strongest forces in Europe. They were silver at this year's European Championships. So they've made this step like quite a fundamental step forward. But when I look at the group, they're the same people. They're just on the same page now. And there's a level of trust and understanding and respect within that group that means that you don't have to talk about the qualities. We don't have to talk about the objectives. Like, I don't know, I can't even think of the last time we talked about the actual objective because it's just, it's, it's accepted and it's understood and now we get to work. My traditional ending, what kind of rabbit hole have you been on recently? And, and recently, I mean, it could be 2020, really. Uh, <laughs> it seems to have all blended into, into one. But have you ended up down, you know, watching a Netflix show or a Wikipedia hole? Or have you found something recently that has kind of captivated you that maybe you didn't expect would or isn't something that you had learnt about before? It's actually a really fascinating question and it's a really difficult question. And what you just said there, if I reflect on 2020, what was different? I actually found that with all the extra time I had, I thought I was going to do so much more reading. What I really realised that I've been doing, which I'm really uh, glad that I did, is I've just had a lot more conversations. Um, I think that it's, it's fascinating when I'm in my normal swing and everything's going normally seasonally. Uh, sure, I'd read more because you're on the road a lot, you're reading, it's what you do on the plane. But because we've been homebound so much more this year, I've really felt the need to reach out and have discussions with people. And I mean, it's one of the way we've connected and several colleagues from several different industries and sports. Um, it's really just come to going like, hey, if you have 10 minutes for a chat, out of the blue, no introduction needed, and just see where that conversation goes. And in doing so has really made um, for some really insightful steps forward and for allowing us to put some of that reading that I've historically done into play. Um, outside of that, there's been like the odd documentary, but nothing that's really spoken to me. The only documentary this, uh, this year that um, I did thoroughly enjoy, and it's not a sports-related one, but it, I could see the high-performance elements of it, was the Defiant Ones, um, which is the story of Beats and Dr. Dre. Uh, and it was a fascinating, fascinating story um, of basically how someone committed to a path and followed through on it. That's really interesting because everyone has had an answer to that that's 
yeah, you know, I watched all these documentaries, I read all these books, but I, yeah, I've I've been the same actually in that I think all of those things have gone down for me and the conversations have gone up as well and and particularly in coaching circles obviously because we had the time to have the conversations with the people that we <laughs> wanted to for some time but, you know, there was seasonal overlap or whatever it may be that we could never connect. There's been this well, a year really yeah, to have more of those conversations and, and yeah, hear, hear the application of the ideas in real time versus waiting for legacy. Yeah, I think that's, that's it. Like I have no doubt that in the next three years, a lot of really interesting and fascinating books will come out about this time. Um, but there's been that part of me in this last year that sort of almost thought, well, let's hold off reading on some of those books because when are we going to put that into play? Like none of those books talk about how to deal with a global pandemic that's completely derailed everything that you'd planned on doing. Um, and it was one of those ones about it's more, how's everyone managing this situation? Because this situation is not in the book. Like some of the biggest franchises in the world had to stop and no one expected that. Um, in our case with the Olympics, they were postponed a year. And, but there was a period of a few months where we didn't know were they postponed or were they cancelled. So how do you manage people through those experiences as they're happening? You couldn't refer to a book. There was no training manual for it. So the only way we could really develop was through sharing our own experiences, which was really helpful and, and really fascinating and not just with other coaches, but with other uh, members of industry, members of like sporting communities. Uh, and hopefully, yeah, hopefully that after this, we don't just go back to the books and we do keep that sharing of communication and information for our benefit. Yeah. That's one of the things that I am trying to emphasize is let's not go back to the way things were and, you know, the, the busy, is how do we continue to carve out time for these conversations? Because again, we've we've been able to validate how useful they are in the real time. And so, yeah, even amongst all the eighty-two games and the three time zones in in a week and the practice morning practice and blah 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 blah, I think not only are they informationally rich. I, I actually think they're um, like soul enriching when mm-hmm. when you can have conversations with other, particularly head coaches, when head coaches are talking to head coaches, is they, they're actually energy givers rather than energy takers. And so, yeah, I, I hope we do stay on that path and, and commit to that because, uh, yeah, they offer a lot. Where can people uh, follow you or your team or, or find you uh, and communicate with you? Oh, I'm always happy to take emails from people. Um, I'm not the most active person. I have an Instagram account, which I'm sure everyone does. It's the athletes have got me on to. It's Coach Tom. Um, apart from that. Really? That was available? Coach Tom? Yeah. yeah. Early adopter, I oh, think. Fantastic. Just early adopter, not an early um. user. <laughs> apart from that, you can email me. Um tommorris.aus at gmail.com. I'm happy to answer coaching questions on that email um, when I get the time to answer uh, answer them. It's always an interesting one. Um, Other than that, 
I'm at most regatta parks when there's regattas on for, for rowing races. And occasionally you'll catch me at conferences if they come back uh, and get brought into our, uh, our new world order as far as sport goes. But apart from that, I'm normally just out in the coach boat rather than uh, on the socials. Yeah, love it, mate. Like I said at the start, uh, probably long overdue for us to record one of these. Um, I, I always love talking to you and it stokes a lot in, in me. So thanks for your time. And I'm looking forward to sharing this with everyone. And uh, I'm sure you'll get some emails on that address. No worries. Thanks very much, Cody, for your time and uh, all the best with the book. We'll speak again soon, mate. Thanks for listening to the whole episode. A reminder that you can keep up to date with the book launch by visiting codyroyal.com and subscribing to my newsletter. See you next time.